This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast to help Christian leaders map a changing cultural landscape in the 21st century. Join us, Bryce and Ashley Hales, pastor and PhD, as we discuss with our guests how to cultivate fruitful and resilient lives and communities. Listen in. Well, it is such a privilege and super fun to chat today with Michael Graham. He is one of the co-authors of a new book that's just come out with Zondervan called The Great Dechurching. And it's a really thoughtful book on where we are in this moment, but it's also a really well-researched book, which I think is important. But I'm great, grateful to be joined today by Mike. And yeah, welcome to The Cartographers. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's good to be here. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't have my co-host, Bryce Hales. He is uh, helping out the church by being at a presbytery meeting. So there we are. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, you know, as we think about this trend of de-churching, you write in the book how actually all of our, you know, AI grammar tools don't actually use the word de-churching. To start us off, can you help us understand what that word means? Yeah. Well, w- going into writing the book, one of the things that we had to sit down with um one of our social scientists, Ryan Burge, and kind of discuss is, well, where do we actually draw the line? Because there was no technical definition before. It was just, you know, broadly speaking, that term would be used for people who used to go to church, but now don't. And so where we chose to draw the line was somebody who used to go to church at least on a monthly basis or more. And now, uh, do it seldom, technically speaking, seldom or never, which means less than once per year. So in other words, we're not even counting the people that, that go to Christmas only. Like if you go to <laughs> you go to church on Christmas, we're not even counting you as as the church. Because we wanted to we wanted to have a definition where it was like really a slam dunk of yes, these people are clearly, you know, out of church. And so um, yeah, there were 40 million people um, in the United States who were adults that fit that category of used to go to church on at least a monthly basis, on a consistent basis, and now um, less than once per year. So now that we got the you know definition a little bit set, uh, tell us a little bit about the story of why you and your co-author, Jim Davis, as pastors, we're concerned about this issue. So give us a little bit about the, the story of the book. Yeah, we'd run across some data from Barna um, on our metro area, which is basically the FCC, you know, Orlando metro area, the seven county area, which is a little over 4 million people that uh, 42% of the city had dechurched. This was about six years ago, the data. Um, and so, well, that's interesting, you know, and we're, so we we're just kind of discussing that as elders. And well, what do we do about that? Because, you know, that that put that particular demographic as the second largest demographic in our city behind 
gender. And so, and we'd always kind of wondered like, okay, well, why, you know, Orlando was is 6% evangelical Christian. Um, and so is Seattle and so is New York city. But why does our city feel different than those, than those two cities? And it was because, you know, the, simply that our church, you know, our, our context for our church is, is a de-church context in Orlando and, you know, uh, New York City and Seattle, those are largely more unchurched contexts. And so those different communities feel differently um, in, in terms of how you engage them and, you know, uh, missiological best practices and such. So we felt like, okay, well, we need to go on, uh, on a journey to just read as much information and, and research as we could on, well, who are, who are the people who have de-churched? And the, the problem that we ran into is there just wasn't much data that was there. The data was, that was there, um, it was really either, if, if it was decent, it was really old. Um, we're talking almost a decade now. And so there's just a lot that's happened in the last decade, you know. And so in order for, and we decided that we, we wanted to do a, an entire podcast season on this subject. So but we weren't going to just like lick our fingers, throw it up into the wind and just kind of say, uh, here's what's going on with de-churching guys. Um, you know, so our podcast, it's called as in heaven. And we do a one deep dive on a, on a major subject. That's a challenging subject per season. And so we, we knew that's what we wanted to do. So, um, at that point we knew that we needed to, um, commission, um, some unique research to this end. And that's when, you know, I mean, look, Ryan Burge is the best religion data person, you know, in the country. Um, we wanted to work with Ryan because, you know, we knew that just from a data analytics standpoint, you know, that he would have the, the deepest insights into, you know, these things. And if anyone was aware of research that was either unpublished or, un, or not data that did exist, but it wasn't widely known about, Ryan would know about it. So... Anyways, we learned that there basically wasn't data, at least not data that was there that would be actionable for like ministers, ministry leaders, pastors, and other, you know, kind of, not, you know, people who, nonprofit people who are, would be interested in this. And so, so we did, um, we conducted a, a three-phase study, um, uh, sample size 7,000 um, over the course of that study and increasingly granular from general popular general population in phase one to um, de-churched from all traditions in phase two, and then a uh, high degree of granularity in among de-churched evangelicals in phase three. So there's insights in the book from each, each of those respective phases, but um, most of the book is kind of unpacking what we learned in that third phase from the, uh, the granular uh, data on the uh, de-churched evangelicals. And just a question, were, were those kind of qualitative studies at that point rather than kind of quantitative surveys? No, these are, these are all quantitative surveys. Okay. So okay. if you're listening to this, like the difference between, you know, quantitative <laughs> right. and qualitative so like, research. You guys are getting way too nerdy on me. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So quantitative surveys is like when you have like multiple choice surveys with a large sample size. Qualitative research is more where you conduct interviews um, of people and you glean insights, you know, from things like focus groups or one-on-ones, one-on-one um, -on -one interviews and those different kinds of things. So for the purpose of our research, um, our research was entirely quantitative. There's a handful of qualitative insights 
that Jim and I kind of draw from our pastoral experiences, but I would consider those things as being non-scientific and anecdotal. Um, you know, so given all of this data that you've mined, what was the most kind of, what were your assumptions going in to the study and what then became surprising what, what, um, as you particularly considered this group of evangelicals who have de-churched? Yeah. So on the whole, you're talking about 40 million people who left houses of worship from all religious traditions. About 20 million of those left mainline or Roman Catholic context, and about 15 million of those were out of evangelical context. So, you know, the, most of the book is covering that 15 million people who left evangelical context. So going into this book, we weren't really sure like what to, what to expect because you know, if you're if you're in like a left wing information diet ecosystem, the story has been, well, you know, so many people have left churches because churches have made a lot of mistakes and churches have hurt a lot of people. And, you know, some of the animating issues, you know, in, in that storyline has been um, racism, misogyny, uh, abuse, sexual abuse, clergy misconduct, those different kinds of things. And uh, I mean, you know, it's obvious, you know, all of those things are real issues. They, you know, we've all, we all, know, we've all read, you know, real actual stories of where these things have occurred. So that's one story. And the story that was kind of told on this subject on, if you're in kind of more right-leaning circles has been, well, it's, it's the culture and particularly, you know, the secular progressive culture, um, or sometimes, uh, you know, the, the sexual revolution is brought into, you know, that conversation as well. And so, you know, people are leaving church because, you know, of, you know, the culture and secular progressivism and these different kinds of things. So going in, those were kind of the two most prevalent narratives kind of explaining um, this phenomenon. When, when we were going over, you know, the data with Ryan, the, the story that was there was far more boring than either of those other stories. And I'll tell you, in, in a minute, I'll explain why that's really good news. Um, but, you know, okay, so both of those stories, they're not wrong, okay? Can you find people who have left because of either of, from either of those reasons or stories? Yes. Um, are there many of, many people who fit those stories? Yes, millions each. Um, however, the problem is, is neither of those stories is the total story and each are incomplete. And the dominant story is actually neither of those two stories. The dominant story is that people left largely for really boring and pedestrian reasons, and most of them left unintentionally. In other words, it's things just like the inertia of American life and just our consumerist tendencies. The number one reason why people, you know, de-churched, um, in, you know, in, in our data was they moved. And then the second one, second behind that was attendance was inconvenient. And then behind that was uh, divorce, remarriage, or some other family change. Okay. Now, when, once you get beyond that, then you start to get into to some reasons that kind of touch either of the two, you know, left, left-centric or right-centric narratives that, you know, that were there before. But it was, it was really, the reason why the, this boring story is really encouraging 
is because, um, you know, it, if you kind of leave something unintentionally, well, it's probably something you're willing to pick back up again. Or if you don't have a lot of pain, you know, surrounding, you know, that thing, then there's probably some willingness there. So when we started drilling down into like, well, what exactly are we looking at here? Well, it looked to be about three quarters of the people who left, left very, what we call casually. Okay. So we call this group the dechurched, the casually dechurched. And then about 10 million people, it looks like they left very intentionally. And typically with one or more significant pain points. And so we call that group the dechurched casualties. So big differences between, you know, the casually dechurched and the dechurched casualties. Um, uh, with respect to the 15 million people who left evangelical churches, um, the good news is that over 51% of them are willing to return to an evangelical church today. And then when you zoom out, um, many of the people who are unwilling to return to an evangelical church, many of those people are uh, another two and a half million people, um, at least another two and a half million people are willing to return to a different type of Christian church um, in, in, the, in the Christian tradition. And so um, that's, that was probably the, this, I mean, look, going into this, we kind of thought that engaging in spiritual conversation and or inviting to some, someone to church based on some of the prevailing narratives that we had, we thought that that was really potentially a pretty risky conversation to have with somebody that was potentially a relationship ending conversation to embark upon. And the good news is that it looks like for the overwhelming majority of people, not only is this not a relationship ending conversation to have, it's for many people, it's probably a conversation that they would be appreciative of. And so, you know, by one thing that does kind of transcend all of that is most of these folks are willing to come back to a Christian church of some sort. It's really only the ex-evangelical group that, that won't return to an evangelical church. But, you know, surprisingly, that group was um, the second most orthodox of, of the groups that are, that are there. 97% of them say that Jesus is the son of God. You know, compare that to the mainstream group at 98%. And compare that to... Um, the cultural Christian group where only 1% say that Jesus is the son of God. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. It's like, what, so, are, yeah. so what are you really saying I, you're I think, a part of? <laughs> I, I think that I, I do think going to one of the surprising things, I think the ex-evangelicals are misunderstood. Um, and now understand in the book, we're using this term differently than how this term has been used online. So typically ex-evangelical online has been, used to uh, kind of unpack somebody who's probably either deconstructed or deconverted. But what we want to say is that there are those people, but we, we use this term because it, this group, 0% of them were willing to return to an evangelical church. Well, is that not the very definition of somebody who is done with, you know, the evangelical expression of the faith? Um, yes. But what it, what it looked like is only about 20% of that group seems to have, 20 to 30% maybe have significantly deconstructed core, like Nicene Creed level doctrines in their faith. And the other 70 or 80% of them seem to really have a pretty decent understanding of Nicene Creed level Christianity 
And many of them seem to be like, they actually want to be back at a healthy church. It's just, they've had very bad church experiences. And plus, you know, the, the average exvangelical is not like the, you know, uh, you know, 28 year old, uh, you know, <laughs> feminist or, you know, who's hyper online. This group was the least online of all of the different groups. Their average age was um, 53, and they were predominantly female, over two, basically two-thirds female, and they were really struggling in, in life and financially, and uh, America wasn't working well for them. So that was something that was really interesting for us uh, to just get a um, – I think that there's, there's some very vocal ex-evangelicals who, who dominate – um, the digital conversation on these things, but then there's uh, some very quiet and very offline um, ex-evangelicals who seem to actually be who seem regenerate and who seem to really have deep affection for Christ, even though they've been out of church on average for over 20 years. Um, you know, the other groups that have been out of church that long, their beliefs eroded significantly. Um, this group seems to largely have, um, ha, ha, seems to have had more sticking power on just kind of the, some of the core, core tenets there. So I do think that there's some real opportunities there for us to just kind of maybe reframe um, or be aware that there's, there's some other folks there that... Um, we are we just be, the loudest on online. Yeah, that we need to pay attention yeah. to. So, This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Help us understand... Um before we get to some kind of practical application and questions towards the end of our conversation, I'd love to to maybe just pause real quick on the way in which, and you mentioned it before, this idea of the online um, deconstructing, let's, you know, for lack of a better word, and the ways in which um, our online communities or even our media diets have affected how we perceive church. What would you say were some of the the findings there in the way in which folks maybe have become detached from a local congregation or have chosen to to leave it? In what role does the media play that way? Oh, I think the internet is is a huge factor in in the entire conversation. I mean, you know, why did de-churching pick up exponentially, you know, starting in the mid-1990s? 
you know, up until that point, you know, America's biggest enemy was the, you know, the kind of atheistic communists, um, particularly in, you know, in Russia. And it wasn't until the, the winding down of the Cold War and the winding up of the internet that all of those things changed. And then a decade later, 9-11 occurs and America's greatest enemies now religious fundamentalists. Um, you know, there's numerous other factors, you know, kind of going on, you know, in, in these, you know, during these times, economic factors and wide variety of, you know, other geopolitical things. But uh, the, the upshot though is the, it, the internet is, it's just, it's just a huge piece uh, to all of this because now you can, in, in the quiet of your own home or in a, or in a, you know, school computer lab or in a library, you know, you're in the night, you know, it's like you can have, um, you can have your Walkman <laughs> and you can be, you know, you can be reading, you know, Nietzsche or whatever, you know, there, and you can be interacting with new and different ideas that you would have never had safe access to before you would have had to have had a physical text and, you know, in front of you for everybody to see. So, you know, I think all of those things just kind of, you know, changed. I think the internet too, in, in web 2.0 in the social media age, you know, you're talking about social media is a fun house mirror. Okay. Uh, my kids are five and six and, you know, we, we went to one of those, uh, county fairs here and, you know, they got the, you know, the, the things with like the fun house mirrors, you know, I'm talking about the, like the curved mirrors and it's like, you stand in front of them and it's like, Oh, this one makes you skinny and this one makes you fat and whatever. And I think the internet functions this way. You know, you stand in front of a, a particular kind of mirror and it makes something larger than what it is in real life. You stand in front of a different mirror and it makes something smaller than what it is in real life. And th that, and this is what the algorithm, the algorithms do to us is the algorithms create, take mirrors that are meant to be in two dimensions and they take those mirrors and they create three dimensional mirrors out of them. And the net effect is the, the image that it holds up in front of us that we're looking at that we think is a mirror image is actually distorted. And certain things are, you know, larger than what they should, should appear in real life and other things are smaller. And I think that's the benefit of, you know, when we do research is hopefully we're holding up as close to a two-dimensional, a flat mirror as possible so that we can actually hopefully see something that is reflective um, of reality and that we can have a good conversation about what we see, you know, in, you know, in, in that image. Yeah, no, I think that's, it, you know, as um, Bryce and I have talked just in our local context, as well as thinking through kind of some of your work and, and others, the, the importance of learning how to deal with disappointment and conflict within the body of Christ seems like a vastly underrated skill. Um, tell us, you know, what else might pastors and leaders and committed churchgoers actually do with some of this research? Help us understand, you know, you said a lot of folks might be interested actually in having those faith-based conversations. They, you know, if, so, and you write throughout the book, several practical ways, like we can move towards people who have left um, by starting those conversations and invite them back to church, you know, gives them, you know, some of that inertia, right, is is that they don't have to overcome when we make the first move. What might um, be some other starting places? 
the number one thing that I want anybody who's listening to this to hear is when it comes to relating with other individuals, it's just the importance of relational wisdom. And we spend a whole chapter on this, chapter nine, um, talking about this subject. And we unpack um, six different principles that together, you know, we think add up to relational wisdom. And so those awarenesses, you know, you can read a book for it, but it's basically God awareness, self-awareness, others awareness, awareness of how other people are experiencing you, cultural awareness, and emotional awareness. And those six different things, they all overlap with each other. They all mutually, you know, influence and reinforce each other. But people who, who, people who are on an active journey to growing in each of those awarenesses together, they will become somebody who people experience and feel like, oh, like Mike is trustworthy or Ashley is trustworthy because the way that they're engaging with me and my story makes me feel comfortable. It makes me feel understood. It makes me, you know, and it, people also need to know the difference between validating ideas versus validating people's emotions or experiences. Those are two very different things. You know, we can, I can be talking to somebody who maybe we have vehement disagreements on, you know, ideology, worldview, um, perspectives on any number of things. But let's say that person has had some really hard or difficult experiences in their life. It's not just not wrong. It's good for me to be, to validate like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's really, really hard. Like, I can't imagine what that would be like if that was, you know, a part of my story. So knowing the difference between having ideological disagreements and where we can be validating of of people and their stories um i think those are those are also other just kind of relational wisdom things so that's on the individual front the the other thing is that is the institutional front and so um i feel very strongly in in an anti-institutional age and where trust has been in significant decline for a decade or more on, on our institutions. And you can look up the data from Gallup. Gallup's been, you know, tracking 14 different institutions and American trust in these 14 different, you know, institutions. And, you know, 13 of those 14 institutions have been in um, trust decline for the last 15 years. Only the U.S. military has grown um, in its institutional trust by the American public. Anyways, um, in, an, in an age of anti-institutionalism, in an age of mistrust in institution, I think the, the only answer and the only way forward is to double down on institutions. Institutions are now not less important. They are now more important. And institutions also need to be, they need to be non-anxious places. And I can think of numerous ministries where, you know, just like individuals can be anxious, institutions can be anxious. And I think anxiety is contagious. Okay. And so anxiety can be contagious at the individual level. It can also be contagious at the institutional level. I can think of many churches and many ministries where probably the primary fruit of that ministry is actually anxiety. <laughs> 
And I, I, you're, you're laughing and you know this because there's ministries in your mind where you know this is the case. And, you know, at either ends of the horseshoe, you know, on any real horseshoe, what you're going to find on any horseshoe is anxiety at, you know, at the, you know, where, where those two, two sides are, are, are close to meeting. And so I think we need, um, there's a lot of things that we can do in terms of institutional best practices of helping to close the back door of the church, making our front door more open and sending out the church body more equipped. So we actually built a whole second um, resource and it's, it's about a 40 page PDF that we have on a website called dechurching.com. So that's probably the easiest URL, um, just dechurching.com. And on that website, so if you're a, a pastor or ministry leader or elder or somebody who's, you know, a serious, you know, church person, um, that, um, that website has a 20-point audit um, for your church. And so what it has is a list of questions of um, each one of those 20 questions is an area that is impacting de-churching. Okay, here's an example of one of, the, you know, one of those things just in terms of a sample. Okay, let's say, um, do you have a process? You just learned that somebody is moving from your community to a new community. Do you have a process as, you know, as a church to help that person who's moving, to help that household as they're moving, find a good local church in that new community? Well, if you don't, well, good news, um, because the, that, that resource has um, basically a worksheet on how to create a kind of process. Um, it's high altitude because the, you know, these, are, you know, these worksheets are meant to be transferable to any, um, any denomination, polity structure, you know, those different kinds of things. But um, we wanted to build an institutional um, facing resource to help um, local churches kind of see, okay, how we're doing on, you know, back door, front door and sending people out well equipped. So the audit is free. That's there on that website, dechurching.com. And then, but if you want like the worksheets for it, um, that's a paid resource, sure. but, the, but the audit's free. So fantastic. Um, that's a really helpful resource. We'll make sure it gets in the show notes. Um, you know, as we think about, I'm, I'm reminded that, you know, there's a lot of pastors and leaders who obviously listen to the cartographers and are thinking through these issues on the ground. Most of them are pretty, are hit pretty hard, um, right. By folks leaving the church, um, and not always casually, um, but sometimes casually and that you've spent maybe so much emotional energy investing in families and yeah, they move or they value their children's sports practices or they just stop coming, they ghost you or, you know, folks on the right who think you're too liberal, folks on the left who think you're too conservative. What would you say to pastors who kind of are feeling that battering um, at the moment? What has been an encouragement or what did you find in the research for, yeah, both personally um you know, to build some of that resilience, that non-anxious presence that Mark Sayers talks about. And secondarily, what does that look like um, as far as how they're helping pastors and leaders are helping to form folks away from, you know, maybe that funhouse mirror image of um, kind of our, our uh, echo chambers? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I mean, I think I would just start again with something really simple and I just start, start with the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, I think, look, I've, I've done this, I've, you know, before taking my role at the Keller Center, was a pastor for 15 years. And there's just, there's no substitute for the new mercies that are ours in Christ each morning. Um, in order to fight against our, our anxious age, we have to do what the Lord asks of us. And that is to have our thought life focused primarily on the things that you know, our stewardship that we have today. And so, you know, we, we have to do the work of uh, resisting the temptation to being worried about things that are either outside of our control or things that are, you know, well in the distance or catastrophizing or these different kinds of things. I think we also need, it's really important to have community of uh, what ideally, you know, people who are embodied and local, but sometimes it's helpful to have, you know, some other, you know, pastors who aren't in your context, who don't, you know, who have distance um, where you can process different things with, with full transparency, but yet without any real risk of losing your job, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you, sometimes you just need people who are safe, who are, who have enough distance outside your context, who can give you good counsel on, on different things. Um, so I think, and, and this is the challenge of our time. You know, if you're going to try to stick close to the Bible in all things, you, you, not only are we going to have the world, the flesh, and the devil that we have to contend with, but in our age of fracturing, you're going to have people, you know, on your left who say, "Hey, you're not listening to me. You're not, you know, you're not progress, you know, as progressive as what you need to be. Let me pull you in this direction, or let me punch you, you know, from from this direction." And then, you know, from the right, it's like, you know, in in the fundamentalist, you know, end of the spectrum. You know, you, you can also get sucker punches, you know, from that direction or, or have painful losses where it's like, Hey, I, I actually don't want this relationship to end. Like, I love you. I care about you, but you know, maybe there's abandonment that, that happens there because, oh, well, whatever the, whatever the gap there was there between you, it wasn't necessarily fatal for you, but let's say it's fatal for the other person. Well, it takes two people to have a friendship, you know, you can't control, you can't control that. So I think every, anybody who's been in ministry, especially, you know, this last decade has all experienced, um, certainly painful losses of friendship, if not outright betrayal. And so I think those are hard things. Um, particularly the more, the more gravity there is there with that, you know, the more we have to take those things to the foot of the cross. Um, with respect to the second part of your question, as it pertains to information diet, um, we are all in trouble. Okay. If you are a pastor, particularly a teaching pastor, you are in real trouble. And let me explain why. Um, if, you know, just consider there's 168 hours in a week and let's say the most, the most involved church member, you know, is sitting under, you know, your 40 minute sermon you know, for, and say they're in corporate worship on a Sunday for two or three hours. And let's say they're in another weekly environment that you have, you know, a community group, a Wednesday night, you know, whatever, something else for another two hours. Well, that's like four or five hours out of 168, you know, 
if they're on, you know, consuming other media um, at all, <laughs> which we all know that they are because we have like a lot of data on this, you know, you're probably talking the, the average person is probably consuming another 30 or 40 hours worth of media throughout the rest of those 168 hours. So really, I mean, look, who, who do we become? We become the, the average of you know, the people who we're spending the most time with, and we become the average of the things that we are allowing to form and shape us. So there's a sense in which spiritual formation, and I have the highest view of the local church and you know word and sacrament and all of these different kinds of things, but I'm telling you, with you know, discipleship must get into the nitty-gritty of people's information diets. Until it does, and in until people turn off junk food and turn on, you know, and get their their greens and their vegetables and their information diet, it's just we're we're fighting a losing battle. And what are you know the junk junk food information diet is stuff that just kind of moves with the the worst impulses of our souls. And it's, you know, I mean, if you got kids, you know, I mean, what do they want all the time? They want candy. They the want junk, <laughs> junk food, you know, and they, they want to rut their brains with these things and it ends up affecting the, the whole person. And so if we're going to have any influence moving forward, um, it won't be enough for us to just have, a, you know, to do Sunday morning well and to do um, small groups well. You're going to have to get more granular than this in people's lives. And for me, spiritual formation starts with the calendar. That's the most important thing I want to see from somebody who I'm trying to mentor or do discipleship. I want to see your calendar. How are you spending your time? And what are you know what is influencing you? I really um, appreciated you know some of those categories in the book about, you know, a religious community, we talk about belief and belonging and behavior. Um, and we, we often, you know, it seems like a lot of these folks, right, are maybe even keeping belief, um, but that don't belong for various reasons, um, or they've drifted away from belonging. But behavior is something that we've really failed um, formationally in the church in the last, for sure, decade, two or three. Um probably as old as the church has been around, <laughs> honestly. But there, you know, there's the reality that, you know, as you're talking about some of these specifics, that we're trying to realign those sorts of things. Um, what does what does that look like? What would you just give as a final word of encouragement um, to those leaders to help folks in the pews begin to then realign belief, belonging, and behavior so that then, you know, that's part of that sending out that you were talking about before. Well, I think these things start with uh, telling a better story, you know, and we need to have, we need to both tell a better story and we need to have institutions that actually follow through on a better story, you know, so don't just like get people excited about something that, you know, that's, you know, a hologram. Um, but, you know, let's make the, let's make the kingdom, you know, to some degree or another tangible. Um, so we want to be, you know, showing people not just that Jesus is good, not just that Jesus is beautiful, not just that Jesus is true, but all three of those things at the same time. You know, 
how far is Christ's work applied? It's, it's applied through all of creation as far as the curse is found. And so, you know, we don't just have a new heart. We don't just have a new record. We get a new heart, a new record, and a new world. And so, well, that's great. You know, I think we've been telling for a long time as evangelicals, you know, only chapters two and three of the gospel. You know, the four chapter gospel is creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But chapters two and three are fall and redemption. Well, that was enough in the 20th century for people to know, hey, I'm a sinner. Things are broken. I need, you know, Christ's redemptive work so that um, I can have my sin dealt with. Okay. Well, we now live in a more complex society in one that actually cares about, you know, that has longings for the kingdom. They want, um, they want the earth to be stewarded well. They want um, shalom in, uh, you know, and human flourishing in society. Um, there's more care to those who are vulnerable or disenfranchised. Well, good. Those are all, those are all good desires. Now, you know, the, you can't have the kingdom without the king. Um, and so, let, you know, what you, we just have to show people, um, hey, you, the longings that you have are actually very deeply Christian. And you have longings for the kingdom of God. But you don't get those things uh, apart from, you know, his, the king's uh, uh, authority and his presence. And so let me tell you about how the Jesus way is the way toward, towards human flourishing and shalom. And so I think those are the things that we have to, we, it's not that we even have atrophied muscles <laughs> on telling these stories. It's, it's that we really have never built these muscles as it pertains to, you know, the, the evangelical, you know, movement. We've been far outpaced on aesthetics by the Roman Catholics, and we've been outpaced on, uh, on issues of, um, uh, uh, you know, seeking the, the shalom of our communities by, by other, uh, uh, you know, other traditions as well. But uh, that would be something um, that I would just encourage everybody of, we have to tell a better story about, you know, who God is and what he's done and who are humans and, you know, why are we here? What are we for? And, and what, what is the meaning and purpose and identity in, in all of it? Well, thank you. Thanks for your good work, Mike. Thank you for the book. Um, and we'll look forward to hearing more as we process all the data. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Ashley. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.